0: Good to see everybody today, glad you're here. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we will be in chapter one. All right, this is the third sermon in a series called Walking with Jesus, A Year with the Savior. So we are three weeks in to a uh, what is going to be a year-long series. Today we are in John 1, the first five verses. Please listen carefully, uh, as this is God's Word. These are also very special verses. They're different than any other gospel, and quite profound. So hear God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Gospel of John this morning to experience this epic drama of the life of Christ. Help us to learn more about your son, Jesus, who is the word, the life, and the light. We think we already know him. We think we already know the story. We think we already know the characters. And I suspect the Apostle John will reveal that we think too much and know too little. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus all over again. Help us to come to know him in an entirely new way. Help us to follow him as we never have before. And as always, we pray that you would give us understanding, help us to be amazed, help us to wonder. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to believe, teach us how to live, build our faith, draw us near, and help us worship you through the hearing of your word this Advent season. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle John today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Will Williman, and he's a retired Methodist bishop. He used to be the dean of the chapel at Duke University, and he's a guy with whom I have a lot of disagreements over all kinds of theological stuff. But I love to read his stuff because he's a professional smart aleck. And I'm jealous because I want to be a professional smart aleck. I just can't think of good responses quick enough. Unless, of course, you're an elder and then you will get nailed pretty regularly. Anyway, I came across this old interview uh, with Will Williman, um, and I just loved it. It was conducted quite a long time ago by Leadership Journal. And the editors of that magazine, I'm guessing it's probably about 20 years old, The editors of that magazine asked the good Dr. Willemann a bunch of questions, and I want you to hear his responses. So they asked him, how should today's preachers address the modern world? So I've decided the Bible doesn't necessarily want to address the modern world. It wants to create a whole new world that cannot be seen without conversion. And so if some people don't don't understand me when I speak as a Christian communicator, that's Okay doesn't mean they're unintelligent or evil. It probably means they're not in that new world yet, and they haven't learned the language of salvation. As a Christian communicator, I need to give people credit for not understanding me. You don't want people to understand you? No, not that. But I recognize they may not understand the Christian message right away. If my message were that Christianity is basically about being a nice person and being sensitive to the needs of others, they could understand that. Anybody who would reject that is a fool. But then we're not talking about special revelation. We're just talking about being reasonable and open and American. But true Christianity, the Bible, says there are good reasons for not believing it, that Christianity is about being nice and sensitive. I mean, Christianity is odd. It's against the grain. It's countercultural. It's always about the displacement of an old world order with a new one. No wonder people walk away in confusion. The gospel accounts strain to describe what happened, but don't make any mistake about it. They're trying to describe something unearthly, death working backward. So I can't talk about the eternal rebirth of hope or Jesus living on in our hearts. We're talking about a dead Jew, crucified, who came back to harass us, and it scares the heck out of us. Well, many preachers try to make Christianity a reasonable option. Sounds like you're doing just the opposite. Well, I've tried it both ways. The first approach that Christian commitment is reasonable is dangerous. If I don't watch myself, I'll reduce Christianity to merely being a good person, someone who's good for society. But Christianity demands so much more. A good question to ask at the end of my sermon is, would they have killed Jesus for this? Not all my sermons stand up to that question. The death of Jesus would seem incomprehensible over some of the bland stuff I've preached. People would be more apt to make Jesus president of a university or a speaker for a weekend conference. But no, people had good reason to crucify Jesus. They recognized in him a threat to the world as it was constituted, and he continues to be a threat. Is the resistance to the gospel more intellectual or emotional? He says, well, we take a distinctively wrong turn when we make Christianity into an intellectual dilemma. It's more of a practical problem, a problem of living. So one student, now in grad school, was telling me he's losing his faith. So I asked him, what is the faith you're losing? He said, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. So what? You don't believe in virginity, period. You mean I'm supposed to be upset over your intellectual questions? You're 19. There's a lot you don't know. Why don't you wait a while, see how your doctrine works out? And then he asked, well, why do you have to swallow stuff like that to be a Christian? Well, I said, we ask you to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, and if we can get you to swallow that without choking, then there's no telling what else we can get you to believe. Come back next week, we're going to try to convince you that the poor are rich and the rich are in big trouble, and that God, not the nations, rules the world, and on and on. You see, we start you off on the small stuff, like the virgin birth and the inerrancy of scripture. When we get you to believe those easy things, then you're ready for the tougher demands of Christianity, which are not so much intellectual as practical. How do I live this faith? What does the lordship of Christ mean in my life? Are you saying that we should or should not preach about behavior? I'm for saying less to some of these issues and more for getting straight who we are and how odd it is to follow Jesus. One reason the world ignores us is because it rarely hears anything from us it cannot hear from dear Abby. I've met people who've given up on us because we're bland. I believe the gospel is true and it's a marvelous thing to give your life to. And I try to say, okay, folks, Just this morning, let's all trust this word from God more than we trust our feelings or our experience. The gospel isn't trying to explore your experience, but to engender a new experience. It's trying to take you someplace you've never been. Let's see where that takes us. And that's the end of the interview. And believe it or not, I find that attitude pretty refreshing. And I thought of that interview because of today's passage. Because today's passage is trying to do exactly what Dr. Willeman said. It's trying to take you someplace you've never been. So let's see where that takes us. But before we go there, you need to get the big picture. We started in Luke, then we went to Matthew, and today we're in John. And you need to understand that John is writing a story to all the world, to all the church, and to you. And it is a story that only John can write. So let's look at John. It is now A.D. 90, give or take a few years. He is the last of the disciples left alive. The community of seven churches he pastors, situated along a postal road, stands in awe of him. They refer to him as John the Elder. An elder is as much a description as a title. For he's at least over 80 years old. In a world where 40 is getting along and 60 is ancient, 80 is miraculous. And John's past 80. He is a simple man from a simple place. But what happened to him was not at all simple, or perhaps it was. He was a follower, a disciple, someone Jesus loved. Someone he trusted with his own hands. John has touched him. And these now tired old eyes had looked into the mystery of his fine intellectual face. And John has been asking himself for years now, what did it mean? What does he mean? At this time in the history of the church, things are starting to get confusing. People are questioning what Jesus said, what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And there's only one apostle left, John. All the other apostles were gone. All the other key members of the first church in Jerusalem, gone. Peter and Paul have been martyred for some 25 years now. All the rest of the New Testament had been written, but nothing from John. And to stand in the presence of the last living disciple is to realize he needed to commit to writing as much as he knew before his lips were silenced forever. He wrote because they wouldn't leave him alone until he did. He wrote because he wouldn't leave him alone until he did. He wrote because he missed the sound of Jesus' voice so much that sometimes he thought his heart would break. Perhaps he wrote in the hope that uh, through the words of just one of his sentences, he might once again hear the familiar sound of his voice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been well circulated. Everybody knew the stories they contained by heart. John has set out to fill in the gaps. He thoughtfully skipped the well-known so he could substitute stories that no one had heard, stories never written down, stories that he'd been telling and preaching for more than 60 years. These stories come together by themes, as good sermons do, light and darkness, wisdom and foolishness, the misunderstood Messiah. And writing them down, working through them again in his imagination, is almost like being back on the road again, walking with Jesus. Details come to mind that he thought were long lost, tired feet from long journeys, fear of the Pharisees, the feeling of having his breath taken away by the gleaming words of the Nazarene. He remembers how again and again the people misunderstood Jesus' words and his works and how after he'd make his most deeply spiritual pronouncements, the crowd would often completely miss the meaning. He would talk about living water and they would only see a well. He would speak of the bread of heaven and they would only want a meal. The essence of John's portrait of Jesus is found in its simplicity. Light, water, bread, seed. Jesus is revealed through the immediate and the tangible. And I imagine that occasionally John would have to push himself back from the writing table to wipe away the tears that were brought on by the memories that forced him once again into the presence of the Galilean he loved and longed for and missed with all his heart. So here they are. The words, thoughts, feelings of the last living disciple. The last person left alive who walked with Jesus. We need to hear them well. This Advent season, it's time to come and sit at the feet of John the Elder. And listen to what he has to say about this Lord of his, this friend he leaned on uh, at their last meal together and whom he's been leaning on ever since. The one John would have us all lean on. The one he writes to tell us is Christ the Lord. This is probably the most relational book in the Bible. John writes not of doctrine, but how Jesus related to people. He remembered the wedding where Jesus solved the wine problem and got the host off the hook. He thought of the blind beggar that no one noticed except Jesus. He pondered Jesus' tender teaching of the Samaritan woman and his tough encounter with a Pharisee at night. And with graphic detail, John takes us on a storybook journey through Jesus' encounters with people. And Jesus met all kinds of people. He dined with the rich, associated with the outcasts, had pity on the sinners, and helped the needy. At every level and every station, Jesus spoke the right words at the right time. He addressed people in such a manner that the simple-minded could understand him. And the learned had to ponder what he said. And he taught with authority. That was new. And people came by the thousands to hear it. They were captivated by his words. According to John's gospel, Jesus didn't have to tell people they needed to repent, instead, he engaged them in dialogue that exposed their sins and shortcomings and mistaken thoughts and bad theology. And when Jesus removes their masks, he speaks restoration instead of rebuke. He is the gentle shepherd who finds the lost sheep and brings them back to the fold. And so he loves them and they repent on their own. They could easily be the people in your life. They could have been your neighbors or your relatives. That cranky old guy who lives around the corner, he's in John's Gospel. The guy at church who still can't see God, Jesus ran into a few of those. The grief-stricken widow, the pregnant teen, your mother-in-law, you see them all in John's pages. And Jesus speaks to them then and now in a way they can understand. And that's the purpose of the Gospel of John. The key verse, the theme of the whole book is found in John chapter twenty verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The student of John will find that each time he returns to the gospel. Christ will be a little bigger, something like Lucy's experience with the lion Aslan who's the Christ symbol in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. As she again gazed into his large, wise face, "'Welcome, child,' he said. "'Aslan,' said, "'Lucy, you're bigger.' "'That is because you are older, little one,' answered he. "'Not because you are. I am not. "'But every year you grow, you will find me bigger.'" My hope is this Advent season, as we work our way through the wonders of the early chapters of the Gospels, we will find Christ bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, of course, we start in the beginning. In the beginning, we see that Christ is the Word, is the Word, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a time when Christ did not exist. Now, technically, that's because the word was is in the Greek imperfect tense, which means was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse bears this sense. It would read like, In the beginning was continuing the Word, and the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continually God. As one person, I think very accurately, though ungrammatically correct, uh, said, Jesus always was wasing. That's it. We would say Jesus is pre existent, he always was continuing. Now, if you're like me, that kind of thinking gives you a headache. Our minds look backward until time disappears and thought collapses in exhaustion. And thus we begin our discussion of the greatness of Christ. Next, the apostle adds, and the word was with God. Literally, the word was continually toward God. The Father and the Son were continually face to face. This preposition with bears the idea of nearness, along with the sense of moving towards God. That's to say, there's always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Trinity. And again, our minds staggers. We think of Jesus as always having continued without beginning or end in perfect relationship with the Father. Moreover, the final phrase of verse one says, "And the Word was God." The exact meaning is that the Word of God, uh, the Word was God in essence and in character. He's God in every way, although He is a separate person from God the Father. This phrase perfectly preserves. Jesus' separate identity while also stating that he is God. This is his continuing identity from all eternity. He is God constantly. This simple sentence of verse 1 is possibly the most profound theological statement in all of Scripture. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And God's glory dwells with man in the person of Jesus Christ. But this is something that no one in their wildest imagination could have fathomed until God made it clear in the life and preaching of Jesus. Notice then, in verse 1, God says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is stressing Jesus' godness, or deity, or divinity. By explaining Jesus with the use of a Hebrew term and a Greek term. To the Greeks, the word, or logos, meant the relational principle or reason or logic that held all of life and the cosmos together. It's the force that kept all order from turning chaotic when someone sneezes. But to the Hebrews, the word, or devar, D-E-B-A-R, but the B is pronounced like a V, communicates God's divine speaking as when God speaks in creation and it comes to pass. The divine fiat that commands life and light into nothing and then life and light come forth. Devar means both word and deed. In the Old Testament, words accomplished something. Thus God spoke the Devarim of creation, the words of creation, let there be light. And the words made the darkness roll back like a scroll. In the Old Testament, what God says, God does. It also communicates the words spoken by the prophets, like Jeremiah. That his words burned within the hearts of God's prophets. Jeremiah 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. That's how God is describing how his word works in your life. Furthermore, we learn the word spoken by the prophets would not go forth and return empty or void. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 55, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful in and of itself. And God's written word, the scriptures, does that. And God's living word, the Lord Jesus, does that. He is the eternal word. That's the first thing John wants us to see. Second, Christ is the life. He wants us to know that Christ is the life. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The fact of Christ's creatorship, that's an actual term, uh, that's the consistent witness of the New Testament. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. Hebrews 1, but in these last days... God the Father has spoken to us by a Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Revelation 4, speaking of Christ, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word life appears 36 times in the Gospel of John, far more than any other New Testament book. It's one of his most important themes. The preceding verses say the word was with God, was God, all things were made through him. The second person of the Godhead, the word, who is the subject of this gospel, is the source of all life in the universe. Not merely does he possess life, but life itself is found in him and comes through him. Jesus also said, John 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. All life is in Christ, including physical life, but John especially talks about spiritual life. The expression he uses most often is eternal life. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world and sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, we, shouldn't think of, or we should think of eternal life not merely in terms of quantity, but in also in terms of quality. It's the life that God has now lived in us. It's not just a prolonging of our earthly kind of life, but it's a heavenly life that begins in us the moment we believe on Jesus, and it never ends. Unending years from now, the life that is of God will still be ours In and through Christ. We can trust such a God with anything and with everything. He is our creator and in him we find life. So do you trust him? Have you entrusted your entire life to him? Considering the greatness of Christ. Nothing else makes sense. And finally John wants us to see that he is the light. That Christ is the light. Verses 4 and 5. This metaphor of Christ as light stresses both the revelation and the rejection of his love as it came into the world. In clear terms, Christ is described as light, starting in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing light does is reveal When you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light in order to see. That's what Isaiah prophesied about in the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 9, you heard Frank pray through that earlier. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. Man was living in spiritual darkness, ignorant about God, living in superstition. So Jesus came to reveal God. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The late PCA pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, comments, Jesus is revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes him known. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God. Christ came His light shone before men. Then men had the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light not only reveals, it also warms. To walk in the darkness is to walk in sin and sadness and brokenness. But the light of Christ warms the heart so that it's changed. The spiritual transformation is what Jesus was talking about in John 12 when he said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The emphasis here is on Jesus being the spiritual, life-giving light going out into a dark world. The thought of our Lord being spiritual light gives us insight into his loving attempt to reach the world. Where light goes, darkness is dispelled, revealing the true nature of life. No place with the slightest crack can withhold its presence. The light shines in the darkness. Literally, it shines continually in the darkness. That Christ is continually shining into every corner of our hearts of darkness through the work of his Holy Spirit in our conscience and in the scriptures. But how is his light received? Sadly, the majority... Rejected the light. Verse 5 concludes, And the darkness has not overcome it. The light is met with tremendous resistance. Think about that. The one who said, let there be light. The one whose love constrained him to shine his saving light through creation and conscience. The one who mercifully sheathed his life in a human body so that he could bring light to men, the one who set aside a special people for himself so they could be light to the nations, is rejected. And yet today, he's still the light. And he still continues to pry his way into hostile hearts. And sometimes those hostile hearts are uncomfortably close. Do you know God? Do you know what God is like? Jesus came to reveal God to you this Christmas. You know God by personal acquaintance, by his presence with your spirit. Jesus came to bring us into fellowship with God as worshipers in spirit and in truth. Whether you are with or without Christ, meditate on Christ being the light. And when you do that, you will become more aware of being loved. John tells us that God has spoken a powerful word of recreation, of salvation. And so the incarnation happens, God becoming man. A word spoken and done, pronounced in syllables of flesh. The word of God became flesh. To use Paul's expression elsewhere, 1 Corinthians, this would have been foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jews. It's unbelievable. But it was God coming to dwell with man in a glory, uh, in a way that's so very unexpected. This introduction to John tells of the speaking of that word. The rest of our year will tell of the person and work of the one who is the living word. For John, the truth of this is going to be demonstrated in Jesus' life. What Jesus says will always be reflected in what Jesus does, and vice versa. He will do something like open the eyes of the blind and then speak the deep truth that he is the light of the world. Jesus will tell his uh, sorrowing friends that he is the resurrection and the life. And then that word will be validated as Lazarus comes hobbling out of a tomb. Jesus feeds 5,000 and then tells them that he is the bread of life. What he says is always validated, illustrated, and fulfilled in what he does. For he is the word and deed of the Father. When he speaks of being light, darkness is always there. When he speaks of being life, a dead man is nearby. When he speaks of being wisdom, the foolish are close at hand. And there are days when we are the ones in darkness, when we are the foolish, and when we are the dead. And we need words of light and life and wisdom. Those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and their own need and consequently feel the wonders of the grace of God most deeply, know that the grace of God has reached out and saved them, even them, Those are the ones who are most likely to talk about themselves as objects of God's love in Christ Jesus. God wants us to grow into his disciples and grow away from our sin and foolishness. But it's because we are the beloved, the one so loved by him that he will change us and transform us by grace alone. John saw himself at one point as a son of thunder. He would become the apostle of love. His response isn't arrogance, it's brokenness transformed by amazement. He's simply overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin. We need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. Shallow understanding of how much we are loved will make us weak witnesses for Christ. We need to believe not just that the gospel is true, but that it is true for us. That's what will make us passionate believers who've been transformed by the love of Christ and who will have uh, that uh, same love overflowing from us to our families, to our neighbors, to our bosses, to students, even those nosy people who sit next to us at church. Simply put, John is aware of how great Christ was and the light he brought and the love he had for John are you really aware of how great Christ is and the light he brings and the love he has for you if not I hope you'll join us in walking with Jesus a year with the Savior because it's all going to be about how great Christ is and the light he brings in the darkness and the love that he has for you Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us a love story in the Gospel of John, a story that reminds us that we're sinful men and women who desperately need a Savior. A story that reminds us that we need a Savior who comes to save desperate men and women. Thank you for showing us that Jesus came to save sinful, broken, unlikely people like us. And he came to save us from our sins. Lord, if there is anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your Spirit you would give them the faith they don't currently have. Give them the ability to believe and help them with their unbelief. On whatever road they travel. May Jesus meet them there. This Advent, we look forward to his coming, and we look forward to his saving. And we give you great thanks for sending Christ, who is the word, the life, and the light. And this morning we pray in the name of the King, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.